Welcome to the Issa Rugby Podcast, where we bring you the latest news, updates, and interviews. With more insights from the Springboks. It is the Springboks champions of the world. The Junior Box, the Blitzbox, our two national women's teams, local competitions, and more. 25 years ago, in 1995, the eyes of the rugby world were on South Africa for the third Rugby World Cup. As hosts, the Springboks were seen as dangerous dark horses, but as soon as the action started, everyone knew Kitsch Christie, Franchot Pinar and their team of green and gold clad warriors meant business. In today's episode of the SA Rugby Podcast, we speak to one of the key men who played a massive role in helping the Springboks bring the Webb Ellis Cup to South Africa for the first time and in the process, united the nation only a year after our first democratic elections. My name is Dion Borchard, and today I'll be speaking to Francois Pinard. There it is. Francois Pinard. And Nelson Mandela is cheering along with the whole of the stadium. A sea of flags. Wonderful moment for the whole of South Africa. We hardly believed it could happen for them but it has and now the celebrations i'm sure will go on for at least a week uh, it's a great privilege for me to welcome francois pinar on this very special podcast today um francois of course was the the captain when the springboks won the rugby world cup in 1995 which uh, we we are celebrating the 25 year anniversary of this year francois thanks so much for making time in your busy schedule and for joining us um, just to, to give the listeners a bit of an idea, uh, what have you been up to in the last couple of months, not only during lockdown, obviously before that, what, what, what is it that keeps Francois Pinar busy during the day? Dion, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's almost uh, unbelievable that on the 24th of June, uh, this month would be 25 years since uh, we won the World Cup and what a magnificent day that was. I'm sure we will talk about it a little bit later on the podcast. Uh, it's been a very difficult time, uh, De Jong, because uh, this thing happened overnight. You know, we are almost in a depression now. Nobody saw this coming. Normally, when you run business and, and, and when you plan stuff, you can see a recession coming and you can start planning. But what happened uh, with COVID uh, happened overnight. Um, so if, if depending on what industry you're in, uh, you are severely affected. Um you know, if, you, if you're in the e-commerce industry, then you will be luckier. Um, if you're in the consumer business, you'll be uh, also able to, to, to plan and pivot. But if you're on the sports, entertainment, tourism, uh, restaurant, and that, that's an industry where we've got a couple of business interests, um, it was severely affected. You know, um, income went to zero uh, while you still have overheads. And how do you plan and pivot through that? So I, I, I am the CEO of, of a business called Advent Sport Entertainment and Media that I founded 11 years ago. Uh, I like acronyms, and the acronym for, for that is awesome, um, because in sport, entertainment, and media, what you want to do is take someone's breath away. So there's a bit of quirkiness in that. And I actually started, started uh, awesome right after the IPL came to South Africa in 2009, and by a bizarre set of circumstances, um, uh, I, I got to know Lalit Modi, the brainchild behind the IPL um, uh, in London uh, through friends. I met, I met him through friends and a very good friend of mine uh, and him did business together. So when the IPL had to move out of India because of the, the terrorist attack and also they had their election, 
Um, they asked my advice and I thought it could work in South Africa. And I, I gave Lala the five point plan. And the next moment we were involved in putting the IPL together and doing the marketing for, for them. So it was just after that, that I decided this is my, you know, my passion is the, um, a sports and entertainment uh, industry, and uh, I founded Advent Sport Entertainment and Media. So we've got interest in, in sport and in logistics and, and in the ecosystem that, that serves that industry, you know, from, from social media to PR um, to branding uh, to clothing. Um, uh, but that industry now has been severely affected. And then we've built some other properties uh, along the way. Um, we, we got the commercial interest in, in the Cape Town Marathon, the Sunlum Cape Town Marathon, which um, we started six years ago, uh, and it's really growing nicely. So it's sort of in that that space that 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 uh, we um, we work in. And when when COVID came around, you know we. You know, you had to plan and, and what does the future look like? So just a couple of months back and even today, there's a lot of uncertainty. And we sat down and, and we looked at various aspects. So we came up with three things. We, we said, number one, we've got to plan for the worst and, and hope for the best. You know, hope is not a strategy, but maybe in this case, it is a strategy. That was the first thing we said to ourselves. The second thing we said to ourselves, we need to innovate. You know, we need to pivot. We need to look at how do we do things differently because um, it's going to be a long while until we get to some form of normality. And the third thing is battening down the hatches. Um, so we, we you know, the first thing for us was to look after our people. Uh, we've got people working at Cape Town, Joburg, our offices, uh, and to make sure they were safe and, and that they were ready to work from home, which, which we did. So operationally, we could continue. And then we looked at all these things, um, uh, trying to you know, trying to make sense of it. You would know that we've heavily involved, you know, started the Varsity Cup in, uh, um, 13 years ago. Uh, uh, and the Varsity Cup was halfway through the, the, the season. So we had to suspend it and, and then understand, you know, what does success look like? Um, and and, and in, in the end, we said we, we need to take some leadership. Uh, we can't just kick the can down the road because if you look at the universities, the students are severely affected. Uh, we don't know when they're going to come back. We don't know when they're going to, um, you know, when be able to do sport again, we, we, we thought that sport wouldn't be high on the, on, on the uh, priority list. And so we, we made a call and said that we think it's unlikely that there will be any normal sport for the next eight months. Um, and we think it's unlikely that mass participation events will be allowed or crowds would uh, gather. So we made those decisions and we worked with our sponsors and our partners, broadcast partners, and they've, they've just been fantastic. Um, the other thing we had is, is, is the Sunlum Cape Town Marathon, which takes place in, in October. Now, again, uh, planning for the worst and, and hoping for the best, uh, unlikely that people will travel to Cape Town. Uh, last year, we had con 85 countries, people from 85 countries come to Cape Town to uh, come and run the marathon. So highly unlikely that they will come because of international air, air travel and also people, people will have changed their behavior. And highly unlikely that 30,000 people would be allowed to congregate on the promenade and, and run um, a marathon. So we worked again with our partners, uh, uh, Western Province Athletics, the city of Cape Town, and very, very important, our sponsors, uh, Sunlam and Kialt, and said, we've built this beautiful product over the last six years. It's the only marathon on the African continent that's got a gold status and it has had for the last three years. We shouldn't damage it. So how do we innovate? Um, and we launched, we were the first to launch a virtual race. So we, we're building an app and you can be in, 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 you can be in Germany, you can be in Japan, running around the Empress Palace on on um, on the date of, of, of the Sunlam Cape Town Marathon, register, get your number online, and the app will 
give you a visual impression of how the marathon starts and then an audio of you running uh, through sectors of Cape Town, beautiful Cape Town. So if you're running on the promenade, there will be seagulls and some music and and information about the promenade. Running through the city, you'll hear gumbo dancers and information about the city. When you run past Mr. Mandela's statue where he made his first speech in 1991, you'll get some info on his speech and what he said. So we're giving, we're giving the runners in the world where they are able to run a virtual uh, experience of, of the Sunlam Capital Marathon. Mm-hmm. So we've done all those things in the last um, uh, a couple of months to, to see how we can innovate and, and how we can plan. So it's, it's actually been a very, very tough, it's a very tough uh, uh, sector to be in. But as I said to my, my team and people, we are all in this. You know, this, this, is not a, this is not something that is unique to us. Globally, if you're in the industry that we are in, it's it's going to be a very difficult time to get through. Yeah, no, you're right. Know, you're right. Like you've like you've mentioned, um, you know, plan for the worst, hope for the best. I want to use that as a bit of a peg to now go back to 1995, because um, when you guys were preparing for the World Cup uh, in that time, it was different. Um, we lived in a different time. South Africa had just become a democracy. Um, Madiba was your greatest fan, and it was great to have him on on your side for that tournament. But it wasn't a case of um, planning for the worst and hoping for the best. You guys actually did meticulous planning for that for that tournament. And like Joel told us in the in the previous podcast, being the fittest team was one of the things that Kitch Christie identified um, going into the tournament. So maybe take us back. Um, t- tell us a little bit about the role Mr. Madiba played. Um, you know helping uh, with the uniting of the nation uh, in 1995. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. And then also the planning that went into the tournament, you know, the fitness work, maybe a bit more about what Kitch Christie's approach to rugby in itself was, game plans and that kind of thing. Yeah, a lot of people um, worked very hard in getting that Springbok team ready for 1995. We came out of isolation um, in 91 and 92 at our first games, we didn't do particularly well. And and people were surprised because, you know, Springbok Rugby was the powerhouse before um, it was banned uh, for the right reasons. Uh, and now we came back and, and, and we, we were not a unit. Uh, and I'm surprised why, why they were surprised. Because if you go and think about this, uh, our test match arena in apartheid became the provinces, the Blue Bulls against Western Province, against the Sharks, against Transvaal those days, against the... So that 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 that, that was our test match arena and different cultures. You know, the guys up north in, in, in northern Transvaal has got a different culture to the surfers in, in Durban and to the, the people living in Cape Town. Now you throw all these guys together in a team and, 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 and expect them to have the same culture. That was going to be impossible. They had to learn uh, from one another. A culture needed to be cemented, and I, you know, I was I was uh, uh, lucky enough to be picked um, in 1993, and uh, I, I actually dreaded it almost when um, uh, Mr. Ian McIntosh came to me and, and he said to me that I'm going to be the captain in 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 this team and, and the first ever game that I was going to play in. Uh, because the pressure of of uh, Springbok captaincy is, is tremendous, um, and the expectations are are really high. And, and I learned a lot from Mr. McIntosh, and, and what he did for Springbok rugby was phenomenal. And it should be never forgotten. You know, he was such a forward thinker in the game and attacking the advantage line and and looking at continuity and energy in the game. Learned a lot from him. 
Um, <clears throat> fortunately, I think I became the captain because of the successes of, of the Transvaal team. Um, we were an incredible side in 1993. Um, my track record as captain and Mr. Christie's as coach is we never lost. Well, I think they lost the last game. I didn't play in the last game. So the track record was 100%. <laughs> uh, and, and we beat the best in the world. You know, we, we uh, in, in the, the first ever Super Rugby, I mean, the team we played against, Auckland, in the final, uh, the team had Craig Dow, Sean Fitzpatrick, Olo Brown, Robin Brook, um, Zinzan Brook, um, Mark Carter, Michael Jones in their team. Um, they had Vaiga Twigamala, um, Lee Stensness, Shane Howarth, Irony Clark, um, Terry Wright. I mean, that's that's just a rock star all black team that we played against in 1993, and 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 we beat them in in, in Super Rugby. So, winning on 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 that front wasn't unusual to us. And uh, so, 1994, we again had, had a lot of success. So the, the team was really uh, um, got, they, we were always going to be competitive. Competitive in 1995, um, how competitive we were going to be depended on how hard we trained and how we executed our game plan and strategy. And, and Joel's right, you know, we were extremely fit, um, really, really fit. Uh, I, I would say the other teams, uh, some of them were not obviously not as fit, but the top teams are always fit. You know, those guys they don't become the best in the world if they're not on top of their game. Um, approaching the tournament was 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 interesting. You know, speaking the other day um, with us, who won two World Cups, um, he actually said he, he it was only myself and, and Coach Chrissy that believed we could win the World Cup, and I definitely I believed months in advance that we will win this World Cup. And and the reason for that is just not blind optimism; it's factual. If you look at if you look at that team um, and how that team performed. Uh, that was just quite a remarkable side. You know, the Rolls Royce of fullbacks. Um, uh, Peter Hendricks scored in 1993, I think he scored 42 tries in a season and not in one game that he ha- have four or five, you know, it would be, he knew how to finish. Um, Yarby Mulder, Henny LaRue, um, Joel Stransky just had the most incredible World Cup. Um, Chester Williams, you know, he, he was just uh, what, what was insane. James Small, U.S. for Nevestazen. Come on, that is a backline of notes. But they were unknown to the world because we just came out of isolation. We had a couple of games, and this team started playing together. And then you go into the forward, Austin Rand. You know, you got we started with James and and and, and Chris Rousseau and, and Naka and Bali Swart and Gary Pag. I mean, that that Gary Pag was probably one of the strongest players that I've ever played with in the front row. Mark Andrews, a genius, Kubis Visa, uh, Hannes Stradom, uh, Ruben Kruger, Rudolf Stroyli. Um, then you go, you mean, you got Johan Rue, was was such a clever player. Brendan Fenter, Krenu Otto, and I, I just don't want to miss anybody. Here. That, that's that's a proper team, <laughs> hey. That that is a proper team. So if that team was given focus and energy, and and we executed our game plan, we always had a chance. Um, obviously, the f- opening game was the most important because we played against Australia who were undefeated in 12 months of Test Match Rugby and they were the current world champions. So um, that first game was was the, the most important game almost for us in a sense. Um, and, and we had the Madiba Magic in that game. We just had. That's true. No, it was a, it was a wonderful day uh, back at Newlands 25 years ago and Joel obviously kicking, dropping, scoring the works um just just looking at the at that team like you mentioned you you had this great set of players available um world stars in their own making but maybe not that well known 
what was what was Kitch's plan? How to mold these guys together, and 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 what kind of a game plan did he employ? How did you go about, you know, playing the game in that day? Yeah, um, again, I'm gonna use Osia as my prop. Uh, no pun intended. Um, we when we had the chat the other day, again, Os said that um, he didn't know Kitch was coaching the side. He thought I was coaching the side because <laughs> Kitch never spoke to him um, for for quite some time. Uh, I was just very privileged to. Um, to have uh, uh, um, such an incredibly uh, gifted rugby brain as our coach. Now, uh, he was harder on me than, than I think on anybody, but they, they, they never really saw this. So we would look at, at each and every uh, team, uh, their strengths, their weaknesses. But this happened, started happening in 1993 already, and, and not just in the World Cup. And if you take his record with, with Transvaal and, and the, then the Lions. Um, <clears throat> so... We would take every game um, and and have a unique game plan for that game, uh, plan A and a plan B, and and sometimes if we needed to have a plan C, uh, we would regularly get together on a Thursday before the game, and, and he would always ask me, "Cappy, is the engine running?" And that's where we took the pulse of the team. You know, those days we were amateur. Uh, the young, a lot of people don't realize we had day jobs. You know, we had to train very early in the morning. Then we got to go and work to pay the mortgage, and then you train with the team in the evening. Yep. Um, and and that had a, an effect on on people. You know, sometimes uh, there was a lot of stress at work, and you could see that in, in the players' training. Sometimes, you know, maybe there was issues that he needed to deal with, and you could see his attitude wasn't as as strong as it should be. So our our job as as captain and coach was to get the team to perform on what I called execution Saturday. We have eighty minutes. We have 80 minutes to execute our game plan. And if we don't do it well in those 80 minutes, we would lose. There's no use complaining afterwards or blaming or pointing fingers. And, and to get the team to focus on executing that game plan, uh, a really fit, very talented, um, motivated team, that team will be very difficult to beat. Uh, so each and every game plan would have a different approach. Now, his brilliance in that Australian game, he, he said it, just get the ball to Peter with space. And he'll score. You know, the Peter, Peter, uh, that try against Campo um, was the start of, of our journey in 95. And a lot of people don't know this, but Peter Hendricks was the 110 hurdles champion world uh, South African record holder for um, a long time. The guy was incredibly quick. Um, so you, do, you just don't go around Campisi like that if, you, if you're a slow, um, if you're a slow winger. You have to be very, very quick. And, and that was catch. He said, you know, give, give Peter the ball with space and, and he'll score. And, and when that happened, it was like, that's the brilliance of Kitch Christie. I've heard the players oftentimes say that he wasn't the greatest coach, but he was a fantastic manager. They just get it so wrong. Um, they, they didn't see the brilliance in his simplicity. Um, he, he watched a lot of rugby. Um, he, he knew the game so well. And uh, we as a team were just lucky to have his brain and his manner as, as, as our coach. But then you got to also look at Casey Pinar and what he did on the rugby field and having him in our, in our coaching um, setup and, and Henny Backer uh, mm-hmm. and, and Monet Duplessis as our, as our manager. You know, we, we, we just had a fantastic, uh, fantastic setup. You mentioned, you mentioned kitchen and planning. Um, one of the things that he did very well was, was, and I don't think it was even a term back in those days, Rotating the players, so making sure everyone stays fr- fit, f- fresh and fit. Uh, I think Henny was the only guy that played in all six matches. 
Um, were you all aware of that planning, how team selections would work, and were on board with 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 the the plans Mr. Christie had for the? Yeah, there was a risk in that because he picked uh, two teams at the beginning of the tournament. He picked the A side that was going to play in the opening game, and the knockout stages. Um, now you can imagine the the disappointment from the other players that realized that um, they were not going to get uh, into the playoff stages. They have to play against uh, Romania, Canada. In particular, maybe a game against somebody in, in the quarterfinals. So that that, that was a risk. Um, and uh, well, we, we won the first game, and, and the second game wasn't wasn't a, a, a great performance. But the game plan was very simple, actually. The, the following two games, we didn't want to show anything; just win the game and and move on. Uh, but then then he changed his mind. I was not going to play against Canada, so I was going to play in the opening game and in the last uh, three. And uh, so he brought brought me back for for that game. Uh, we all we all saw what happened um, at the Butia Rasmus, uh, and that, that was difficult. Hey, that that almost broke the team uh, apart. Um, and I probably that week after that game showed the the, the weakest leadership um, that I've that I've shown. Um, I was just as an individual so disappointed. You know, we we never were going to go into the game as aggressors. They always talked fire and brimstone. And if you go and look what actually happened is, is James didn't punch anybody. I mean, Peter, uh, he just pulled the guy off Peter and then all, you know, all hell broke loose. Um, but the laws of the game then stated the third guy into a fight, he sent off with a red card. So, so we lost, um, yeah, we lost two of our key players and we could have definitely, uh, we could have definitely become unstuck. Um, but fortunately, you know, then, uh, a guy like Chester Williams, who was the poster child of the Springboks for 1995. And remember the slogan, the waiting is over. That was the whole pitch that South Africa's waiting is over to welcome the world to come to our shores and we can show them uh, the Rainbow Nation. Uh, and then he got injured before the opening game. So he was gutted and he was going to play any role in, in the World Cup. But through this, this circumstances, mm -hmm. he came back into the team and and scored four tries against Samoa. What, what a comeback. Of course. I want to get back to Chester a bit later. Um, but, but looking at, at what you mentioned about, you know, playing against Canada and Romania, not giving away too much. Um, it was a different era, like you said. It was amateur rugby. Um, looking at the way planning and analysis were done for matches, um, was it all like big picture stuff or... You know, what micro-level work did you guys get into looking at opponents and then obviously, like you said, not showing too much of what you guys had in, had in mind for the, for the knockout? You know, for an amateur team, there was a lot of granular uh, thinking, obsession with detail, obsession with detail. And that was our coaching uh, outfit and, and the leadership team, um, really smart rugby brains in, in that side, uh, people I could lean on and ask for advice. Um, so the... The planning would be down to the T, um, and that was ahead of its time for for amateur rugby. The game against Canada was very simple. You know, Johan Roo was going to control the game, and if you look at Johan Roo's hang time on box kicks, I think he was the best in the world at, at that stage. Um, so we were going to put a lot of aerial bombardment on them. We we're going to pressurize them, get them into the corner, and scrum them into the ground. We we scored two tries with pushovers, pushover scrums. Adrian Richter both. Um, so the game was done. Twenty 0 That's done. We don't have to go and show moves and stuff um, that was not that was not going to be uh what our intention is we we're going to go in there and focus on 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 doing just that and getting through the game without any injuries actually but then as it turned out it it, it 
didn't turn out that well in, in the last 10 minutes. The game against Samoa was, again, the strategy yep. there was to, to run and, and to play running rugby. We played them a couple of months before the World Cup and we beat them really nicely. We had a really good game. So we were confident going in that game that we need to spread the ball and, and really put points on early. Um, and that's what we did. Uh, so each and every game, depending on the weather conditions too, we had to change our tactics against France in the semifinals. I mean, boy, the, the weather was awful and we didn't, didn't know where the game was going to take place. So our tactics had, had to change there. And there, our kicking game worked so well. Our kicking and chasing game was just superb. And the Euro, Andre Jaber, I mean, he, he, he was playing with a, with a, um, with a severely damaged hand um, that was so swollen and, and had a special cast over it. Uh, so, you know, they were, they were bombing him and, and trying to unsettle him. He was just, he was just awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at, at that Samoan game, Chester coming back, scoring those four tries, um, like you mentioned, you know, losing, losing one of the, the key players in your squad, Chester Williams, just before the tournament started and then getting him back, that must have given you guys a little bit of a lift um, going into the knockouts. What, what Chester brought to the team um, was, before that game, was so um, needed. Like I said, I had a bad week as, as a leader. The team were fairly down because, you know, we were a team and we were focused and losing two players um, <clears throat> wasn't the greatest week. And when I asked him to, to say a couple of words, he, he told the players what was happening in the country. You, you must remember, Young, we lived in a hotel, went to the training fields, into the bus. So in, in a large extent, we, we didn't see how, how the, the tournament and, and us doing well in the tournament is really uh, affecting the morale of the country and uniting this country. And, and he shared that with us. And that was just the most amazing Thursday night of him. You know, he's a very quiet guy, stood up and, and tell us that we, we, we don't realize what's happening in the country. Mm-hmm. Listen, sometimes it put, puts a lot of pressure on you too. But that was just, that was just the tonic we needed. Of course. And then, un- unfortunately, Chester, um, you know, now that we're speaking of him, He's one of a number of your, your teammates from 95 that have sadly passed away since. Um, from, from, from your point of view, how difficult was it losing Chester, Ruben, Ewist, and then James last year as well? And obviously, Kitch Christie. Um, the, the players were all still pretty young, the former players, when they, when they passed away. Kitch, obviously, a different... A different yeah, we also, also remember but, um, but, Ron Holder... Um, uh, who also passed, um, it's traumatic. They're young. I mean, yeah. Ruben was 37. Um, that's just, that's it's so young. And, uh, he, you know, he developed a, a brain tumor and, and passed with, with, with young kids. And uh, Russell Mulholland is, is another um, person that was part of our, our management team that, that also passed. But, but, but he was older and... And sadly, um, mm. like Kochi, had cancer, and, and, and eventually cancer got, got got the better of them. But if you if you look what has happened recently, it's mm-hmm. just been it's been it's traumatic. Um, you know, James Small, Chester, at, at, at a relatively young age in in in, in today, um, losing them is uh, was was a, was a, was a big shock. You know, and you could see that other players were affected when when we went to the the funerals. Um, yeah, it was, uh, we, we miss them and, and we will 
on the 24th of, of this month, we will definitely as a team uh, remember remember them and also remember Madiba. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, we'll also on the 24th <laughs> remember that, that great day at Ellis Park. Just from your point of view, talk us through Saturday, 24 June 1995. <laughs> oh, there's so many things I can share. Um, some of the stuff that has been shared already. Um, it was just a. It was it was a scary day, you know, when you wake up in the morning. But it's also you're so excited. The um, the emotional roller coaster um, is is something very difficult to describe because you're playing in the World Cup final. Um, you're playing against an incredible side um, that produced that year one of the greatest rugby players the world ever saw, and, and to this day still remains one of the greatest players the world has ever seen. And um, you, you realize it's much bigger than just a game. You know, it's 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 for a nation, and you're representing your country and your family and uh, your mother and your father. So it's a very emotional day. And within that, you need to calm yourself down, make sure that you go through the normal routine that that you've done so many times over to set yourself up to be at your peak when you perform. Because again, I come back to execution. Saturday, there's 80 minutes to execute. Um, and, and I'm so proud of how um, <clears throat> the team performed that day. It, you know, one of the things that could have turned, turned, turned against us was when Madiba walked into the changing room. We didn't know he was going to come to our changing room. You know, the changing room those days, in the amateur days, you were not allowed to go and warm up outside on the field. So you were in the stuffy, deep heat, uh, uh, smelling uh, beautiful changing room, getting ready for the game, and the emotions are just bouncing <laughs> off the ceiling. The endorphins are going mad, and you're trying to keep people calm and focused because discipline, 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 discipline is so important. You make one little mistake, and then you give away a penalty and you lose the game. So it's all about margins and how you manage these margins. And then there's a knock on the door, and in walks um, Mr. Mandela wearing a Springbok. Who could have ever, ever imagined that? And you in that change room, you have no clue. You've got no clue. And he walks in. Oh, my word, young! It was just very emotional, um, electric. Uh, and he just said, you know, you've made us proud. Good luck. And, um, boy, that could have really um, gone the other way in, in terms of being coming too emotional and too charged. Um, so we, we had to calm the, the team down after that and, and got out there. And, and then, I mean, that stadium just just erupted. It was uh, The noise was, was deafening. But it was a noise of energy that, that was something I've never experienced before. Um, the game is there. People saw it. You know, we could have won before extra time. They could have won before extra time. You know, they actually missed the drop right at the end. And then it went into, then it went into extra time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had great discipline. Ruben scored a try that wasn't given. Um, and uh, um, uh, managing the managing the margins was, was very important. And one thing people might not know is I, I, I just had a, a, a long conversation with Mr. Morrison. He was the referee um, on the day. Our, our agreement was that I just said, listen, 
just please don't, please don't give a decision if you're not 100% sure that will influence the outcome of this game. If you're 100% sure, no problem. But if you're not 100% sure, please don't give a decision. That, that was how we spoke to one another before. And, and when Ruben scored, he looked at me and said, Francois, I wasn't 100% sure. And the players were so disappointed. I said, that, well, fine, let's, let's refocus. Let's recalibrate. Re um, that's why that game also went down, down to the wire. Looking at the game, you know, we, we, we really played, played well. And, and we, um, you know, we did ourselves proud. Um, then going into extra time, I, I guess that's where the, maybe an extra bit of fitness counted. Um, maybe not because they were also just so mm -hmm. fit and, and the way they played, if you look at uh, how, how New Zealand played in, in, in the extra time, um, phenomenal side. Uh, and in the end, you know, we got the opportunity. Um, Coachy said to Joel that a drop goal is the easiest three points on a rugby field, but you got to make sure you can do this properly. So poor Joel had to practice, practice, practice. And, and when he got that chance, um, all that practice uh, came off and, uh, yeah, and we won. Yeah, Joel said um, the, the call was actually to do a quite an elaborate move down the blind side from that scrum, but when he saw how the All Blacks lined up in defense, he realized the drop goal was on and he said, he kind of overruled you on the field. Um, I hope there's no bad feelings about that. But like you said, um, you know, the kick went over and, and, and that was it. So you, I'm pretty sure you were not too upset about, about Joel. No, not at all. I, you know, I, people ask me about my style. I said, I, was the, I hope I was a benign dictator because I made all the calls, all, all the starter moves, you know, from the line outs, the scrums, all the starter moves were my calls. And then we would play from there. So, yes, I did call it because it's impossible almost to drop from there. You know, he's right-footed. It's a right-hand scrum. Um, Bishop is on the other side of the scrum. He's too close to Joel. So I called a move with Ruben um, to penetrate the blind to, in order to give Joel a bit more space. But as soon as that, as soon as that scrum wheeled and he uh -huh. saw the chance, he just canceled. And that was how the team just operated. It was Joel got the ball so quickly from Joost and he had a millisecond and he just struck it so beautifully. Of course. Francois, I want to move on a little bit from, from 95. Uh, you played your last test in 1996, but I'm sure you probably felt that you had some, some test rugby left in you at that stage. How did your, how did your Springbok career uh, come to an end in, in those days, a year before the Lions? Yeah, I was carried off the field. I had concussion against the All Blacks. Um, we were leading 18 points to six at Newlands, yeah. and that was the last time I put a Springbok jumper over my shoulder. I got dropped from the team, and uh, I was going to then go into business. Focus on it. Given, you know, bearing in mind, after '95, the game did turn professional, so I was going to see out uh, my contract with the Lions, which had another two years to go. go get back into business uh, and look look at what I'm going to do after rugby. Um, so that was going to be my focus. And then it was it was I, I got three offers to go and play rugby overseas that I I didn't want to. You know, the first time I flew on a plane overseas was in 1993 as captain of. The Springboks can play in Australia, so you know, I, I just uh, didn't have that in my mm -hmm. my mindset. But my my wife and and my coach and mentor, uh, Kitch Christie, uh, convinced me to go overseas for a year. So we thought it would be an adventure. Um, the three teams that that invited me to come and play it was um, Leicester, Richmond, and Saracens. And and we said to ourselves, if we're going to go overseas for a year, it's not going to be outside of London. We want to be in London, and experience London. And then on further investigations, mm -hmm. they um, they said that Nigel Ray, the guy that's backing Saracens, is a really nice, 
nice gentleman. So I, I literally flew over on the 16th of December with uh, Nareen, uh, met with him, liked him, shook his hands and said, listen, uh, I'll come and, and play for a year. Um, we don't need a contract. If you don't like me, ask me to leave. And if I don't want to be here, then I would like to have the freedom to leave. You know, when I say to people that I went uh, on a mark-to-market basis for less money, they laughed. You know, the, the, <laughs> the exchange rate was seven to one to the pound. And I said, this is my contract that I have in South Africa. I've converted to pounds. So if you pay me that, I'll come. So on that basis, I went to, I went to Saracens. Francois, so you were, you were still based at Saracens in 1997, I think. You were probably still playing there when, when the British and Irish Lions came this side. Um, is, is that something that you regret, that you didn't get the opportunity to play against them? Uh, and how much are you looking forward to next year's tour? Don't, you know, I, I don't... Why regret stuff? I've always, you know, been debating. You know, there's a lot of things that you can regret if you want to. Um, life moves on. You've got to make... Um, you've got to make the best of what hand you're being dealt. And, and leaving here wasn't ideal. Um, mm-hmm. Arriving at Saracens wasn't ideal. I almost came back. It was, it was really amateur. It was The club was going to go nowhere. And I said to Nigel, I'm leaving. And then he asked me to become the first ever player coach. Um, so I became player coach. And, and very fortunate that we won the first cup in 127 years uh, that, that, that year. So um, at, a, at a great time and, and met some fantastic people at Saracens. So when the Lions came to South Africa, I came with my friends to come and watch. So Nigel Ray, the backer of Saracens, his whole family, um, his mother actually came over. So we, we toured South Africa, which was fantastic to, to experience. Obviously not the result. Um, that, that wasn't great. But, but the Lions experience yeah. no. um, is phenomenal. You know, they just got such a camaraderie that brings them together um, every couple of years. Um, the nations that, that fought against one another become one, and the songs they sing and the stories they tell and, and their, their, their passion for the game is, is it's just it's infectious. So next year's tour is going to be phenomenal. Um, I'm looking forward to, to being a tourist. Um, mates, we've already discussed that we, we can do something special, tour our country, and uh, and follow the Lions as they play against the Springboks. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people are really excited about their arrival next year, and um, hopefully it'll be a great series. Francois, thanks so much for your time. I've got one last question. I think um, instead of, we've talked about 1995 quite extensively now, um, but I'm pretty sure the listeners would love to hear your thoughts just on what Siakulisi, Rasi Erasmus, and the rest of their squad that in Japan last year, you were there. Uh, we saw you on TV celebrating like a proper Springbok supporter. What was it? What did it mean to you? You saw my reaction. You know, experiencing was, that. <laughs> I couldn't hold myself <laughs> back. It was mean? actually, it was quite embarrassing, really, because I, we're sitting there and, and behind me, um, you, you have dignitaries. Uh, you had uh, Prince Harry and, and um, Sir Bill Beaumont. Uh, from England, and, and when when Cheston scored that try, I, I ran back to go and our, give our president a hug. And after I, I did it, I realized, oh my goodness, here's Prince Harry sitting in, and and Sir Bill Beaumont, and and I felt I felt a little bit ashamed for a short while. I didn't, you know, I didn't <laughs> I didn't show any manners, but it was magnificent, man. It was just fantastic. And I I was in the streets, Yan Cape Town, when they came past. I'll never forget Trevor and Yonganya's face because the bus came past and he saw me standing in the street. They just started shouting, ah, 
uh, it was special, and, and again, it brought our country together so so well. Um, and for me, you know, it had it had all the all the all the memories from 1995 just came back. Yeah, no, it was a special time. Thank Francois. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, taking us back, sharing your thoughts on on that special time 25 years ago. And a couple of other things. Uh, good luck with all your ventures. And um, thank you, Dion, um, and time. to all the listeners. Uh, good luck in in these very difficult times that we're living in. Uh, I, I said we're going to learn a lot about ourselves. We would learn a lot about our families, about humanity, and it's so nice to see how people in South Africa are all there to help uh, the poor and the vulnerable. May that continue. Time is up. South Africa 15, New Zealand 12, at the end of a grueling and great afternoon. Knocked on by Van der Westeidland. It's over! Triumph for the Rainbow Nation! Thank you for listening and please join us again for the next SA Rugby Podcast. For more, click on springbox.rugby or check out our social media channels.